afternoon, all you intellectuals here the week before Christmas. If you're listening, <laughs> you definitely are trying to stay in tune because there's a, a million ways to be distracted that have nothing to do with politics or intrigue, uh, that have nothing to do with uh, a lot of the news that you're seeing nowadays. It, it's, it's kind of a rush to get your attention here before the end of the year. It's the second week before, I guess, next week will be dedicated to Here's the summary of the year. Here's the top 10 list of this year and top 10 list for next year. Things to look out for. Uh, you know, it's always retrospective. You also get to the end of the year and it's always these st- shows on TV, the, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s. And it's all this summary of a decade that's a perspective of whoever directed it. Uh, I didn't know where to begin today. I, I truly didn't. By the way, Chad Adams sitting in for Brett Winterville. So if the voice and intonation sounds different, even the subject matter, the way in which I intonate and articulate, it's because I'm not Brett, but I am pleased to have you here. And if you would like to get in on the phone call conversation, well, the radio conversation via the phone, how's that? 704-570-1110, 704-570-1110 here at News Talk 1110, 99.3 WBT. A lot going on. And, and it's kind of funny because a lot of what we discuss on this show ends up being kind of the leading news the next morning as people have time to kind of chew it up, spit it back out, and try to say it in a way that heretofore hadn't been said. And and today, I, I kind of started off in, in, in the social media world. You, you never know what's going to happen out in social media. But, but I, I definitely struck a nerve. There were two things that I did that really struck a nerve. And you get to see it's a really vivid example of knee-jerk, anonymous, lefty, animated individuals that get easily triggered and then try to gaslight you. In other words, if you have an opinion and you share it and you, and you, and you basically say it's an opinion that they come back at you. And then they, when they don't win on the merits of whatever point they were trying to make, then they start getting more personal and they try to assert things about you that you never said, you never intimated. And then when you call them out on that, they change the subject again and it keeps getting deeper and more malicious. So the, it's the second one. I'll go to the second one first because it's, I think it's kind of interesting. Josh Stein, who's running for governor, he's the Democrat attorney general. AG in the state of North Carolina seems to mean aspiring governor. Uh, we, we had this with Mike Easley. We, we certainly had this with uh, Governor Cooper. Now we've got it with Josh Stein. If you're the AG attorney general, you're also the AG aspiring governor. Josh wanting to fill those shoes. Now, he's been, he realizes that, or at least the team around him, now, personally, I've got nothing personal against him. We disagree politically. I do not think from a policy standpoint, I, I think he loves to, it, it's easy, we say on a show like this, it's easy to be a lib lefty. It really is. You just promise things to people. Oh, you want more money. I believe you should have more money. Oh, you you want more, I don't know, government funding of whatever. Yes, well, we need. We want to get that. And these evil Republicans uh, are cutting taxes, and uh, they're only doing it for the wealthy, even though that's not true. Uh, so we need to stop them. And we need to raise taxes on the wealthy, and we need to give everybody stuff from the state. That's pretty much it. I, now, I'm being a little overly simplistic here, but that's the, the basic premise of Josh Stein's run for governor. I'm not being mean. He's been the attorney general. So he's trying to assert that he had a picture of himself petting a cow on Twitter saying, look, I, I love the farms in North Carolina. And I, I pointed out at that time, I was like, well, that's interesting because he was born in D.C., raised in Charlotte and Chapel Hill. This is about as close, maybe Farrington, which is a village south of Chapel Hill, but not a guy who spent a lot of time on farms. 
They know that when they're polling, the, le- the, the Democrats realize that when they're polling on Josh Stein, they have a problem because he can't relate to the average North Carolinian. He's kind of he's been an elite in an elite family his whole life. He has trouble relating to normal people that are in rural communities across the state or go to the grocery store. He just has trouble. They're trying to it's a likability issue that they're trying to overcome, make him look like an everyman. So look, I was photographed with a cow because I can connect to people who have cows. And I pointed out, look, you raised in born in DC, raised in Chapel Hill and and Charlotte. Uh, not a guy who spent a lot of time on farms. Then he went to Ivy League schools and and some time in Africa. Not a guy who uh, spent a lot of time in the rural parts of the state. Doesn't know the. I mean, I just can't connect to those folks. So roll forward till today, and just, so Josh Stein posts: North Carolina is is home. It's the place I grew up. It's where I did my K twelve. It's where I met my wife. It's where we raised our kids. I love our state, and I'll never stop working hard for it. And there's a little bit more, but that's that's the the, the basic. And I said, I, and so I responded to that, and I said, well, that's kind of interesting. I said, you were born in D.C., you were raised in Chapel Hill, then you got a B.A. from an Ivy League Dartmouth College, not in North Carolina, then a law degree from Harvard. Yes, that Harvard. This isn't someone who relates to everyday North Carolinians. That's why his team is pushing this narrative. And so I put that out there, and then I added, I said, by the way, at Josh Stein, uh, would you care to comment on the current president of Harvard since you're an alum and uh, on the plagiarism or her testimony, either one, and you're running for God? Because it, it seems like the media runs to a Republican every time Donald Trump says anything or anything happens uh, on any issue. They'll run to Republicans and say, what do you think about this? And they shove a microphone in their face. So, But they don't do the same thing to Democrats. I think Josh Stein, as a Harvard alum, someone who's trying to connect to everyday North Carolinians, very difficult for him to do so, to ask him. Do you think, I mean, the anti-Semitic kind of uh, allusions that the the Harvard president, the 40 plus accusations of plagiarism at your university that is in He notice he won't, he doesn't want to tell you that he went to Harvard right now. It's not popular. And from a grassroots perspective, it would be devastating. If everyday North Carolinians saw him as an Ivy League Dartmouth Harvard guy, his numbers for governor would be horrific. They know this. They're doing everything they can to not have to deal with that. So when I did that, a, a group called Moving NC4, because a lot of these lefties, they don't want to use their real name when they come after trolling Pete or myself or Brett or, or anyone else. He wrote, did you ever ask, did you ask every alumni? Did you ask them all? Alums don't vote on the presidents of universities. Ah, but anyone paying attention knows that they clearly have some import there. They clearly have something to say about it, but, and should. Because donors are speaking with their money and pulling money back from Harvard. It's a big deal. Is your, your opinion about this does matter? And it does matter to, to everyday citizens. Continuing our erstwhile discussion this afternoon. And, and appreciate you being a part of it as we head closer to Christmas. Uh, shortest day of the year. A beautiful one. I don't know where you are, but where I am, it's absolutely flipping gorgeous. And uh, probably we'll stay a little bit cold. Now, having said that, I was talking about the provocation. The left, many people on the left are very fragile. And, and, and Kate Calendar, you heard that in the commercial, talking about these, you know, these silos, this tribalism and stuff. And 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 we actually, I communicated with Pete earlier today on this. And Calendar is, you know, he's 
he gets banned by people and stuff like that all the time, just like I do. And so I was throwing an article out there. I, I, I debated reading the article first, but I think I'll go through some of the commentary because I think it's 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 worth it's it, it's at least worth having knowledge about. And what I had posted was that th- there's a the Spectator has an interesting article today about uh, it's not it's when white people begin to believe in critical race theory. What, what does that mean for society? So this is going to be a provocative little bit because someone got majorly triggered. They're very unhappy people. And I and so I, I took a piece of that. I'll go through the article later. I, I don't want to go through it right the second, but I want to go want to go through it because there's a lot to be discerned from seeing that. So I said a quote. All I did was lifted a quote from it. I said, white men are no longer being judged based on the content of their character or the merit of what they produce. They're judged based on their skin color and gonads, and they are de facto being deprived of college placement and job promotions. That's a quote, not mine. That's theirs. So this, uh, uh, an individual who claims to represent a group called Moving NC Forward um, took issue with that and said, wait until Chad finds out that white men will soon be a minority demographic, to which I, I don't really care. It doesn't bother me much at all. I, I, whether you're a minority or not, I, I, I don't care. I was, And what I wrote, I, I responded. I thought that was odd because I, it was kind of a personal shot. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll engage, thinking we're going to have a rational discussion. I said, it doesn't bother me at all. Much of my childhood was spent as a minority. You judged me without knowing that fact. A curious person might have asked, at least I use my real name which is true. I was raised in Puerto Rico and, and, and the Mexican border, and, and much of my childhood formative years were spent that way. And you know, I was bust because I was white. No big deal. Part of my childhood. And our, our real name of our group is Moving NC Forward. Duh. <laughs> He's like, he missed the point about an individual name and hiding behind it. And then uh, another one, Blondes for Biden, said, I love it when people say they can relate to being a racial minority when they aren't one. I didn't say that. I said I was I, I was articulating my reality, not hers or theirs. And I, I said I agree. I agree, which completely confused her at that point. Uh, on that point, and that's the kind of though it's kind of this hate-filled way of looking at the world where these people get so easily triggered that they just start spouting off. You know, uh, and then so that person got attacked. You know, attracted, and then started looking through other things to write comments on. And I had had another post about what if states just, you know, because they're, we see uh, what people are doing. And I said, what if states start banning candidates they don't like? It's what we discussed on the show yesterday. Blue states start banning the GOP and red states start banning Democrats. That sounds absurd, but we're hearing that discussion. We're seeing that California wants to take Trump off. Texas has discussed taking Biden off. It, it's an absurd race to the bottom with respect to our Democrat Republic here. Democrat. And so the person chimed in again, whoever this anonymous person is. What if people learn to read the Constitution and use their brain instead of running their mouths? What if Chad would shut up long enough to read the 239 pages? You're absurd. And I I thought it was funny. Started laughing. So I responded, trying to be nice. I said, hey, your ignorance and anger is kind of palpable here. Freedom and anonymity doesn't make you brave or correct. And that, of course, you know, set off even more. And and uh, reading your stupid expletive, then the name calling and the expletive start uh, makes me incredibly happy. It reminds me how lucky I am that I learned how to think, is what they wrote. And and there was a, a series of additional kind of responses. In fact, I put them together in 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 a group. And let me see if I if I have them all together. They're kind of funny because because 
they just got really triggered and they said, here's a quote from the universe. Your show is not about legitimate or logical debate. It's about you yelling into the void about expletive to try to make money. I, again, didn't say anything like, like that. I said, I appreciate you helping me give something to talk about. It's like the old Billy the Kid make you famous. Remember the movie? Uh, Pat Garrett. It, anyway, so then he said, so you picked out a race, a race baiting quote from an article and tweeted it, but you don't expect people to think that quote meant something to you? Okay, buddy, sure. And just just, just, just over and over and over. Uh, and I, I just kind of let it go. You have to because you can't expect to have people be reasonable you can't expect to have a rational discussion with irrational people. And that's one of the worst aspects of social media. I have discovered there are some wonderful folks out there that you can have a discussion with and you can actually elevate a point. I, I've done Spectrum Cable, uh, Spectrum Capital Tonight show, I don't know, dozens of times with Tim Boyum. Been on there as a conservative. I don't shy away from that. It's conservative commentators. what I've been. I've been a writer. I've been a talk show host. And having discourse is what makes this country really unique. You know, I, I don't... Well, at least not yet, worry about being imprisoned because I happen to be a conservative. Uh, although, <laughs> you know, there are people with that kind of concern, and it's a legitimate concern because the left doesn't portray itself as very tolerant. And, and the, you know, the argument is the right doesn't either, but I, the right doesn't immediately want to put you in jail. That, that's the big difference. I can disagree with you. I don't want to put you in jail. A lot of people on the right, on the left, will say, I disagree. I want to put you in jail. I, I want to take away your freedoms because I disagree with you. You shouldn't have a right. You see this with the climate stuff, and I'm not going to belabor the climate stuff too much. Probably not at all, maybe. But you find with the climate discussion, there are, are people in other countries and this country that would like to be able to put people who want to push that debate in jail. You either... Get on board with what we are saying, the narrative we are pushing, or we put you in jail. Unless you think that that can't happen, let's just go back about two and a half years ago when, when we saw people being thrown out of the military, people not being able to be employed, not being able to go to school, because they didn't do what government said do without a factual basis for doing it. It's why the World Health Organization, why the CDC, why many others have lost so much credibility is for that very thing. It's exactly what the problem is. And that's, that's, the, that's the, the terrifying part of this is that I come from you know reading the founding documents. If you look at the Adams and Jefferson stuff, it's these guys' best friends – loathed each other at times on issue after issue. I mean, Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton end up in a duel killing one another, or one of them. But the issue is that we do disagree. We fight. We come to the table. We're passionate. As Americans, that's what we should be. That's what we are. It's it's part of our core system of beliefs. But when you lack tolerance, that's when you want to take up arms. The sad thing for the left is they're the ones least likely to be armed, in theory. But they're, they're okay with expressing that anger. And, and feeling entitled to your stuff, and it's okay to legislate taking and confiscatory policies. I mean, I remember when Roger Stone's house was – I was amazed. I was watching it. So CNN happened to have cameras there, and all of a sudden Roger House, you know, 70-year-old dude with his wife or girlfriend, I don't remember that. But I do remember, you know, SWAT teams everywhere around this house as if this guy was going to break out like Pablo Escobar. It was insane. It was absolutely insane. But that's, what, that's when you see the weaponization of government, and that's what I thought – 
we really are going to see the weaponization of government because we saw it when they took down that guy. And when we went to Biden's house, it was kind of, hey, let's go. To, you know, Trump, they'd storm Trump's place. It's just this very aggressive utilization of government force when they disagree with you. Man, I just read some of the stuff and I just, I feel for these people. They, they really, they really feel this, this, this bitterness and this anger. I'm just not. Life is, life is far too short. You know, we're here in the blink of an eye and it's gone. And the degree to which you have family, friends, and, and can make a positive influence on the world, that's in a good way how to measure things. I sometimes wonder, I have many times watching the news when I hear Raskin or or any of these, even even many of those in the North Carolina House and Senate that are that are on the, the far left, or not even just the far left. It's funny, anybody on the right, you'll notice the news media always calls them far right, the far right. <laughs> so is so, the far right. They're just conservatives. I mean, if you're a conservative, you're considered far right. And and the news media never refers to so-and-so as a, you know, Jamie Raskin's on the far left or Elizabeth Warren on the far left. They might. They, they don't even refer to Bernie Sanders as the far left. Maybe the squad gets... More left, but not far left. But you know, left and right is what is what it is. And sometimes I wonder if they really believe the stuff they say. I, I I know you feel the same way. You'll be you'll be watching the news and you'll see somebody say something, and you're like, do they really believe that, or are they just saying that because it keeps them in power? You know that you can make money and and get support. You know, uh, the Sheila Jackson Lees of the world, the Stacey Abrams, do they really believe the stuff they say? Or do they just say it, you know, because it uh, gets donors? I, I don't know. I mean, Trump may be a megalomaniac, but I absolutely believe he believes what he's saying. But when I hear Adam Schiff and, and Eric Swalwell and, the, and that crowd, I, I just think, I don't know that they believe what they say. If you would like to get in on the conversation, I want to get to this race article. It is interesting and thought-provoking, and I think it's worthwhile uh, as we see kind of things turn and what it's doing to kids and stuff. But if you would like to uh, comment on this, and I know we have listeners across the political spectrum, across racial spectrums, and in fact, some of the some of the best callers I've ever heard on this station are the people that engage in that. I think it's thoughtful. I think it's provoking. And 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 the callers I've heard personally and listened to on other shows are are really engaging, even when they disagree with the host. Sometimes, especially when they disagree with the host, very thought provoking. Seven zero four five seven zero eleven ten. 704-570-1110. If the voice sounds different, obviously I'm not Brett Winterbull. Chad Adams sitting in for Brett this week. But I, but I do want to get to uh, that that column. And and that has to do with, you know, white people. <laughs> white, those stupid white people. Um, and what it's like to be raised when we start realizing the implications of this critical race stuff. And, and I want to try to get through it. It's a little heavy, a little deep. It'll take us a little bit of time. And this is from Spectator. Spectator, obviously a right-leaning magazine. I'll give you the source, always. Uh, as diversity, equity, and inclusion reaches its apotheosis. And by the way, other governments are starting to realize how damaging and dangerous these kind of diversity, equity, inclusion offices are. They actually do nothing to bring us together. They drive wedges between anybody they can. And, and you see it in, in other places. They're saying, we've got to get rid of this stuff. As it reaches its kind of pinnacle, some erstwhile protected classes are chafing at their recent exclusion. Being diverse only matters if power and privilege are associated with it. In other words, if, 
If you can say that, it, you get money and power from it. What happens when the people that are most hated, the white majority, it views itself as excluded and as a persecuted class, America is in the process of finding out. The problem with this gussied up tribalism, and that's really what we have, is that people start identifying with their tribe, especially if their tribe is at the bottom rung of its power structure. White men, this sounds funny, I'll, I'll identify as white today, white men are no longer being judged based on the content of their character or the merit of what they produce. And by the way, the, the, the critics, not the critics, but that earlier Twitter feed, that they made a lot of comments. That a lot of uh, that individual who, would, who wouldn't put their name out there uh, bashed you as listeners, bashed this show, bashed the radio station. It was, it was just a, the kind of ignorance that shows how angry they really are. But back to it. White men are no longer being judged on the content of their character, what they produce. They're being judged on their skin color, their gonads, and they are de facto being deprived of college placement and job promotions. They're being pushed out of polite society and become the butt of every joke. Many say, well, it's about damn time as the, they perceive white men as privileged people. People who, through no qualification other than being white and male, sat at the top of the power structure. If white men endure a couple of generations of persecution, it's no more than they deserve for all the colonization, uh, colonization, sorry, destruction and unearned benefits they've enjoyed. The only problem with that equation is that these people being shoved forcefully to the bottom rung still make up the majority. That is, if they ever chose to fight back, the numbers are on their side. I don't like that part of the article, but, but it's true. To this point, white men and white women haven't viewed themselves through a critical theory lens. They've been inculcated with the idea of a colorblind society, a melting pot, if you will. Fairness meant seeing people as individuals and to not judge a whole group based on one person. The idea was called racism. It was considered racist. It was to demonize an entire group on the basis of race. Racism was anathema to most white people save a few racist stragglers, still the case, the worst epithet that could be hurled at a white person was being called a racist. I agree. If you got, if you got called that, imagine if, if someone in the 80s or 90s or early 2000s called you a racist, that was one of the worst things you could call somebody. Furthermore, in critical race theory, people of color, not colored people, mind you, could not be considered racist because to be racist, one has to have power. The question now, who has the power? Judging by recent congressional hearings interviewing the women heading the various ivory towers, it's not white men. You saw that, three women leading those ivory tower universities. Racism against white people is now the norm. From government Christmas parties excluding white employees, we saw that up in Boston, to safe spaces on campus. Discrimination against white people isn't just allowed, it's encouraged. What happens when systemic suppression happens to the majority? America, again, about to find out white kids have been drinking in the critical theory while simultaneously de-Christianizing. And since they, too, now view the world through this lens, they're coming to the obvious conclusion. Being white is bad. Some, mostly daft girls, think being bad is good, and white people are at the bottom. Being at the bottom is no fun, especially when previously one didn't believe in a top or a bottom. If you believe that it was a melting pot, then finding yourself at the bottom is kind of ironic, isn't it? The woke didn't reckon that a white majority might also see victim status once the boot to the face jammed the whites down the ladder of status simply for being white. They thought their racism would have no consequences. They still seem to think that. Left out of these leftist will-to-power calculations is that the white majority is increasingly secular. 
Previously, their Christianity served as a limit to behavior. Christians submit to God. They have faith in him and God. In the Christian worldview, view each person as an individual, neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. God, in the Christian worldview, sees each soul, and Christians are told to view it that way. Christians are told, judge not, lest you be judged. Jesus is the ultimate judge and jury, so on an individual level, vengeance is God's, not the Christian's. We'll continue this discussion on the other side of the break. You know, it's easy to be very serious because there's a lot of serious things going on in the world. There always are. It's worth discussing. It's worth thinking about. It's worth cogitating, as my grandfather would say, tongue-in-cheek. You need to cogitate about that, son. And and I did (laughs) about a lot of stuff. So Christmas for Christians is is really the, the sign of hope. The, the hope for the world. It's, it, it, you know, when I was raised or, or went, went different places I was raised, I was very fortunate to be in, in, in amidst many different cultures being raised and seeing those cultures and the differences. But, but Christmas was a, a, a hope for the world. It was the birth of, of, of hope in an heretofore un, just foreign way of looking at things. It's no longer, you know, there's the before and after the New Testament, uh, Old Testament, New Testament. It's no more blood sacrifices, right? There's no more blood sacrifices. Blood, uh, Jesus is the ultimate hope. The hope springs eternal. Hope for mankind, hope for us spiritually, mentally, to get along, to to understand our fellow man. It's, it's, it's a, a level of hope that just is difficult to put into words. So when you see... You know, when, when I saw that, that Obama had been elected, I didn't support the policies. I didn't support the I didn't vote for him either time. Uh, but it, at the very least, I thought, OK, look, in America today, no matter where you came from, in theory, OK, this we're done. We're done with the whole racist stuff. But but it got worse, didn't it? The Democrats, it's like everything, no matter what the issue is, if it's climate, the the uh, the. The environmentalist, and by the way, conservationist, environmentalist. Look, I'm a conservationist, and the difference between conservationist and environmentalism is conservationists have guns. But the the point being is, we all, I think, all of us in our hearts want a cleaner world. All of us in our hearts want a safer world. They, we we want our kids to to have more opportunity than we had. We want this to be a safer, cleaner, more opportunity, you know, more opportunity. We we want these things are in common, but it seems more and more that we don't have these things in common. When you say defund the police, you're not telling me you want a safer world. When you don't want to defend the world, or the border, you're not telling me you want a safer world. When you have policies and you push policies that push race on people uh, and pick one race and you pick winners and losers based on race, you're not telling me you want a safer, better, more oppor- you know, a world with more opportunity. And when you start telling me it's okay to butcher kids and have surgical procedures on them without their parents knowing because of a gender ideology. You're not. You're not. You're not embracing things we have in common. You're pushing the edges of sanity, and I'm not talking about just the legal definition of sanity. You're, you're pushing a mental health problem onto us, and then expect us to just sit there and take it. And we're not. We should be far. The, the rest of this column over the Spectator, it, it says that America's unifying themes were Christian. The founders had this understanding as a foundation for the nation they were creating. As the United States secularizes, and that's a word we don't talk about, secular. It's kind of, it, it's almost this, it's not quite atheistic, but there's a, a great deal of secular atheism out there. 
But it's it, what it's a suspension of unifying themes. It's the abandonment of something that's larger than humanity. That's larger than than a group of individuals that want to do things. It, it's kind of that thing that we know when we say they're endowed by their creator. It's a belief that there is more to all of this. It's a great belief. As the United States kind of abandons that, becomes more secular, a reality that makes the woke rejoice. The majority, once governed by limiting principles in the use of power due to Christian ideals, will no longer be limited. And you've heard that theme come up, at least my hosting here, and I know you've heard it from other hosts, that all of a sudden, if you don't have limiting principles, which our founding documents are a series of not just of writings between the founders, of, of bringing that together in the Constitution, limiting the powers of government, not giving it unbridled power, but taking it away and giving it to you. Some historically marginalized groups, primarily Asians and Jews, are chafing at the label of being called white. The same leftist Jewish professors and university funders who taught or believed in this intersectional claptrap are alarmed to see the anti-Semitism that's breaking loose everywhere, that sat beneath the surface, and worse, that no one is fighting against it because Jewish people have been lumped in with white people as colonizers. Jews, in this critical analysis, deserve to be abused because they are white. They have positions of power. And are oppressors against the brown people. It doesn't matter that Hamas attacked Israel. It doesn't matter what is just or what is right. What matters is that in the critical theory hierarchy, Jews are seen as white folk. While some Jewish liberals like Bill Ackman and Alan Dershowitz have recently spoken out against the DEI efforts on campus, it's interesting that Jewish leftists aren't scrambling, and they should be, to dismantle critical race theory that led to all this evilness. Rather, they want to be being viewed as a victimized class deserving of special considerations, Jewish leaders opposed California's adoption of a new ethnic studies model curriculum, according to David Bernstein, because it's implicit omission of Jews as an oppressed group. Jews are not allowed to be an oppressed group. It's Critical race theory and intersectionality inevitably lead to a fractured society where all members identify with a group based on superficial characteristics so they can have power, or when things go really badly, protection. Especially Jews right now. Jewish people in America and the world are a small group of people proportionally. They're always at the mercy of the majority. They are the ultimate minority everywhere. 2.4% of the American public. That's not in the column. That's just a fact. There's always at the mercy of the majority. In this case, the majority is white and nominally Christian. Up to this point, Jewish people self-identified as a persecuted class. They've been overruled by other persecuted classes who have decided to label them as white and privileged. And it's just sad. It's, it's a great piece. The rest of the piece, in the critical theory calculation, one thing is entirely tribal. Might makes right. Have those pushing these ideas considered what that means for them? White identity. Identitarianism may be the only recompense the hated majority have to achieve respect and fair play, but it will come at a great cost. The woke have not considered the price we may all pay. I've got a piece that I'll be ending the show with today, I believe, uh, on this matter about the lack of civility and the anger that I articulated earlier. And it's a it's a wonderful, wonderful piece that I will get to at the end of the show today. It's it's rather remarkable. Um, and and it, it's a great one. It's called The Hour is Getting Late, and it's a transcript that I'll get through. And it's just a, a, it's about the fact that we kind of are, excuse me, we are in a cold civil war. I'll take it a little further than, than Calendar. It's not just that conservatives go to war with each other. 
we, we find ourselves in a very, very cold civil war. Now, if you want to get in on the conversation, give us a call at 704-570-1110, 704-570-1110. You're always welcome to be a part of the conversation here at News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Going to the top of the hour, second hour getting ready to be underway. Chad Adams, your guest host here on Brent Runnable's show. We'll be right back after this. Don't want to get into it too deeply. It's not not a pleasant conversation. But there was a, another mass shooting, not in our country, in spite of you know that's probably why it's not as widespread of the news. But it was in Prague. Uh, a lone gunman opened fire Thursday in a university building in downtown Prague, killing 14 and injuring more than 20 in the Czech Republic's worst mass shooting. Bloodshed t- took place in the philosophy department building at Charles University, where the shooter was a student. According to the Prague police chief, the gunman also died. So they had earlier said 15 had died and 24 were hurt. They changed it to 14 died, 25 injured, but said, you know, others, uh, others are not out of the woods yet. They do believe that the gunman killed his father earlier Thursday in his hometown, just west of Prague. And he had also been planning to kill himself, but there was not more elaboration than that. They said the gunman also suspected of killing another man and his two month old daughter on December the 15th. So this has been going on for a week or so. So lest you think it only happens in America, it doesn't. And it's uh, obviously a, a devastating, horrible story across the pond, so to speak. And when we went to the break, we were talking about the, the concept of critical race. Why, why the, Nobody should be making one person feel less than because of their race or their sex. We've, we've come a long way. It's a shame that we we and tribalism is kind of is a funny natural human state to be in. It it is part of a survival instinct that we've always had. When you lived in some remote village and someone came to the village, you didn't know if they were friend or foe because it was kind of trust till you know. You know, it was, it was kind of look suspect and and make sure you can trust those individuals because that's where threats came from outside of your village, outside of your cave group, whatever you want to see. But it, it's a natural survival instinct. So when someone, and it's also natural, don't think it's not, it's natural to suspect, and I don't mean being raised to believe this, but it's this part of your, part of being human that when people look different than you, you're naturally suspect of them. I mean, that's Charles Cook circling around New Zealand, the Maori just, I don't know, killed a couple of them and ate them. But it, it was a threat when, when, you know, they're seen as invaders. When people look different than you, they represent a threat. I mean, it's 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 just the way we are. We are very different. It's, it's fascinating to me. Many Asians will find difference with Japanese toward Koreans. There's there's a lot of discrimination, and 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 they can tell instantly, and they know. And there's there's this discriminatory attitude in Costa Rica. It's against Nicaraguans because Nicaraguans come across the border, they get jobs, stuff like that, not unlike the, the Hispanic situation coming across the border here. Not as bad, though, because the Costa Ricans actually defend their border and their immigration policies. Point being, what was, what, what's been great about this country is that Italian, Polish, 
British, German, African, regardless of which country in Africa, basically European, Asian, whatever, wherever you come from, you come here and you got a shot, a better shot than anywhere else on the planet overall. That's the belief. That's the the American hubris, so to speak, the American exceptionalism that that Tocqueville wrote about and many others have as well. And, and, but we still have that tribalism. You see, where do you see tribalism most manifest and accepted is in sports. Go to a game. Go to any game, whether it's a high school game or a professional game, whatever it is, college, that's tribalism. When you've got UNC playing Duke, they hate each other. Not because of the color of their skin, but because of the color of their uniforms. And the geography from whence they come. State, it, it is who we are. Now, they wouldn't say they really hate them, but they do really hate them. That doesn't mean they go kill them, but that's kind of who we are. The secret is to kind of couch human nature and embrace it once there's no reason to trust, because it is unfortunate that we have reason to distrust. There's reason that groups are afraid of other groups because of crime, the perception of crime, who commits crimes, or at least who's popular seen as committing crimes, and the fact that we don't like to have honest discussions about crime. We don't want to talk about, you know, if it's, it's black on white violence, that's, you know, you don't want to talk about that too much. You don't want to talk. And then white on black violence, that does make news every time. Black on black violence, which is still a, a horrific problem in this country, is often ignored. Let's not talk about it. It makes people uncomfortable. And so when we don't have these uncomfortable discussions, really uncomfortable things happen in the aftermath of it. I mean, we, we have this tribalism right now. It, it, there's a lot of wokeism tearing down statues. Somehow, tearing down the past is good instead of contextualizing the past. I think we're making a horrible mistake tearing down these statues in a lot of places instead of contextualizing it and saying, here's what happened. I mean, if you took a bulldozer and raised Auschwitz to the ground in Europe, you wouldn't do that. You want people to know what happened there. You want to know that people were herded up like cattle. You want to know they were exterminated in mass. There, there's a large group of people now that want to want to believe it. They don't want to believe. They, they actually go out and say it didn't happen. Assad from Syria, leader of Syria, wants to say it didn't really happen. They didn't kill millions of Jews. They didn't round them up and put them in gas chambers. They didn't do that. Yes, they did. And those who ignore history destined to repeat it. We don't want to repeat that. I mean, I would say the Palestinian, it's, it's remarkable to me how far the Palestinian support network has gone. Who would have thought that the Palestinians could launch an all-out offensive, kill, rape, destroy, put babies in ovens, decapitate others, go run back with you know 140-plus hostages, and get sympathy from the world and demand that any kind of reprisals must cease and that Israel's the bad guy? I mean, having been there, I've been very blessed to have been there and been near the Gaza. I, I, well, I'll talk a little bit about that on the other side of the break, but I didn't want to get into that. It's not in my list of things to go. It's just where the conversation kind of went. If you want to get in on that conversation, you guys are always welcome to do so at 704-570-1110. 704-570-1110. Hope you got your shopping done. I certainly have not gotten mine done. And I don't. I'm thinking about the show all day. So why would I shop? And I'm not an online shopper. I'm just not. So what we will do is uh, in, in a, we will get to the other side of the break and talk about some of the other stuff that's going on out there. Uh, certainly, there's a great piece over at thehill.com that discusses how 
badly the Democrats are doing right now. And a lot of people can't understand that because the Democrats heretofore were the working man's party. They were the party that really you know, took advantage of race and, and felt those were counted on. Like Joe Biden said, if you, if you, if you ain't black, if you ain't voting for me kind of stuff, it's this, this, but that the old way of looking at things is completely fracturing and falling apart for the Democrats. And they are starting to understand why they don't understand it completely, but they're starting to understand why. Welcome back to the ever-exciting second hour here on the Brett Winterville Show. Your enthusiastic host, Chad Adams, sitting in today. And as always, you want to get in on the conversation, give us a call, 704-570-1110, 704-570-1110. And Dave, I appreciate you holding through the break there, buddy. What's on your mind? And thanks for calling. Hey, hey Chad. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I'm a 64-year-old white male. Uh, in other words, I'm in the crosshairs of the current pendulum swing away from uh, racism as has historically been known towards the other direction. And that's how these things tend to go. Um, when there's a, a course correction, we tend to overcorrect. The other thing that happens is, is that those that are uh, pointing accusatory fingers oftentimes are the ones that are more guilty of the behavior that they're uh, upset about. And, uh, and so I, I speak from uh, a position of being around for a while and seeing things come and go. I had the blessing of growing up in an ethnically diverse neighborhood. Uh, matter of fact, when I was in junior high school, that was the initial um, uh, start of minority to majority transfer uh, busing in Dallas, Texas. And I'm very thankful for that because that initial fear that you have when you see somebody who doesn't look like you or maybe doesn't dress like you or whatever, uh, you've got to get past that. And if you can ever get past that and, and really have a conversation and get to know people, you'll realize quickly that, that most of us are very, very much alike. We have the same desires, the same challenges, the same uh, hopes uh, for ourselves and our families and children. Um, uh, but we've got to somehow get past that. I, I really um, I despise the way that our current president has continued the politics of division based upon race. Uh, he is so blatant about it. He is the chief offender in that scenario that I was just describing. I think I think a lot of your observations were spot on, especially the pendulum swing. I think that was a that's a very it's much more common than I would have thought. But the fact that you observe that and it, it's true. I mean, we do kind of knee jerk back through the other side in an Edgar Allan Poe way. That pendulum comes way back to the other side. That's true. And I also think you're right about the Biden administration. I think the Democrats in general right now, they need that to be for we they need us to be at each other's throats on race. They need for us to be at each other's throats on abortion. They need for us to be divided because and I've, there's a great column about this written by a Democrat that I'll get into later. It's funny you're prescient on that because that's the truth. They're, they're losing their base because all of the fear mongering isn't working like it used to. Even on climate change, it's not working like it used to. So, I, Dave, I appreciate you calling, man. And, and uh, I think a lot of I think most Americans of all races, colors, creeds, backgrounds think 
along the lines that you do. We really we're not a hate filled country. We don't want to hate our fellow Americans. We just don't want to. Are you there? No. Okay. Okay, Dave. Sir. I, but I don't think that we want to turn on it. We, we want to live in safe communities. It, it, and and, um, and there's also a very libertarian streak in America. And that libertarian streak goes something like this. Most folks, in spite of what the the race baiters and the, L, the, the, the pride movement that wants you to think otherwise, even the transgenderism, transgenderism folks, most people really, long as you're not hurting anybody, they don't care what goes on in the confines of your house. As long as you're not hurting others, you're not imposing your wishes on others. That's, that's, where, that's where the lines get drawn is when you start wanting to impose things. Most people on the right, you know, most, most people, left, right, as long as you're not hurting someone else, and you're, well, unless you're Latisa James and, and, and there is no victim and then you have to persecute someone politically. But by and large, most people just don't, it's kind of live and let live. And in fact, you're in a neighborhood, someone comes in that, and if there's, a, if there's a, a string of robberies in a given neighborhood, the neighbors that get together don't care about the colors, backgrounds, sexual preferences of the fellow neighbors. They will unite and find a way to root out and find whoever's victimizing their neighborhood that is now their tribe. It's their tribe, irrespective of, of the background. And, I, and most Americans are that way. Yeah, uh, you know when we get you know if, the weirdest thing is I I think most Americans are sick of the border thing, but they don't know what to do. They they feel very hamstrung because Congress is just I uh, blaming the Biden administration. The Biden administration sends Mayorkas out to say everything's fine. It's definitely not fine. Even even the three letter news agencies that heretofore defend everything Biden does, they don't have an answer for it. They just report. Look at the numbers are coming across. They're coming across. They're coming across, and it doesn't end. But I, I do think that that there is hope out there. I think what we're seeing now is the the great pushback from all areas. We're seeing more. I mean, Trump's support, and I'm not. This is not an this is not an assertion that Trump is the great white hope, so to speak. I, I don't want that's that's not not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, I think many people of Trump him he has more support among African Americans than any Republican that we've ever seen. He has more support amongst Hispanics than we've ever seen. He has more support amongst a more diverse group of, than any Republican has seen. When I say I meant Republican, and I think a lot of that is because people see the attacks on him as being over the top. And, and we'll kind of get into that on the other side, not about Trump specifically, but I think the left has overplayed their hand. They've overplayed it with diversity claims and, and being fair-minded the, the, the Ivy League university that's, that's inundated with lefty ideology has seen as out of touch. I think many of the policies, people think they're out, they see the border, they think, God, why aren't the Democrats, why don't they seem to care about this? The, and I think even with Josh Stein running for governor here in North Carolina, he is seen and he knows, his team knows, oh man, he's got that Harvard thing and that's not going to go well for us. He's not seen as an everyday kind of guy. He's got that elitism. His whole family's been about elitism. They've been seen as that way. They're counting on that loosely held coalition of special interest groups to get Josh across the finish line for governor. It's from, from your local level to the national level. I think Democrats find themselves rudderless. Pleasant music. 
think it's is this Christmas Vacation? Everybody knows it is. Okay, I thought so. Man, there's some scenes in that one that are hysterical. So, welcome back. Glad you're joining us here in this uh, second hour of Broadcast Excellence on WBT, and that is News Talk 1110-993 WBT for all of you. 704-570-1110, 704-570-1110, the call-in number if you want to be a part of the broadcast. Appreciate Dave's call. Appreciate all calls. They move to the front of the line. They move in front of even the topic the host may want to be dealing with at that time. And as we head into 2024, I don't want to say anything's a foregone conclusion. There are, there are a million different things that could happen. Uh, events change things on a dime. I d- there are two things I absolutely, unless something dramatic changes, I do not foresee, I don't foresee a way to really derail the Trump. I mean, because it looks like everything the Democrats do, they're very counter, they don't have kind of a logical way of looking at him, their hatred of him runs so deep that they have no objectivity with respect to if we really wanted to beat him, why don't we have issues that make him look bad? Instead of using the power, it's, it's a prayer rabbit in the briar patch. You know, it's like he trolls you and says you're going to use the power of, of government and you go and use the power of government. He, te- he tells the public what you're going to do and you go and do it. And then you feed, and then all of a sudden, a lot of people that were questioning, going, I would I would never support this guy, all of a sudden are in a position where they're supporting him. Because they're like, wait a minute, they are using the power of government to destroy this guy. And and, and he constantly trolls them, and they bite, and, and, and it's it's almost like they have the intellect of a largemouth bass with bait being put in front of it uh, next to a log, that they're just waiting for Donald Trump to put a piece of bait in the water, and then they bite it, they can't help it, and then they land it, throw him in the boat. And it's done. And, and that's what they do. So right now, here's with with Iowa, you know, Nikki Haley. I, I don't know if she's got enough comeback to get there, but it it unless something dramatic happens, I, I don't know. It, this Colorado thing's backfiring poorly on the Democrats. A lot's going south for the Democrats right now. I don't know that Haley can pull it off. I don't know if America wants to return to a a typical politician. Biden's like the worst example of a politician that can't engage. And Trump is like, you know, the ego has landed kind of. And so we're stuck in this constant churning of weapons of mass distraction, uh, even though the issues do matter. And I think even though Trump is the ego has landed kind of candidate, the same time the issues are in his favor. The issues he pushed for and supported are in his favor. I do agree with the caller we had a few days ago saying, hey, I wish he would say Operation Warp Speed you know, the thought was really good, but the net result wasn't that great. It needs to be refined. Could have done it better. Probably shouldn't have done it. And that Fauci was wrong in so many regards. And that, that Trump said, hey, one of the mistakes I made was Fauci. I think if he says that, I don't, the press can beat up on him, but they always beat up on him. But I think it's one of those things that would help people go, oh, okay. I like that. That was a caller. That wasn't my idea. It wasn't my original idea. It was theirs. Now, here's where uh, Will Marshall, who's an opinion writer over at the Hill, one of the most well-read Journals for those inside the belt line and, and, and politicos and, and people like me, pundits, I guess you would say, they have a, a great piece, kind of an, an indictment for a leftist writer that's writing about the problems that I would. And I agree with him. I agree the Democrats have all of these problems, and it's going to take a little while to get through them. It's been a dreary political winter, he writes, for the president. He's buried under an avalanche of adverse polls. Biden is showing 
perilously low public approval ratings, as well as scant enthusiasm, even amongst loyal Democrat voters, there's not a lot of enthusiasm for Biden at all. The blizzard of bad news, however, doesn't mean he's going to lose his job next November. That's especially true if his opponent is the rapidly divisive Donald Trump, who is kryptonite to American democracy. Again, this is a leftist writer. So I want you to, I want to keep going because he's trying to say, hey, Biden could still pull it off. I don't think he can, but we'll keep going. The president's consistently poor job performance numbers and the fact that he's trailing Trump in many polls reflects a general Democrat failure to consolidate and expand the anti-Trump majority Biden assembled in 2020. Over the past three years, Democrats have made little headway on their top strategic imperative, winning back working Americans. On the contrary, Trump has expanded his already enormous margins amongst white working class voters, even as Democrat support among black and Hispanic non-college voters continues to erode. He's writing. This, this leftist columnist is saying, look, the Democrats are losing ground with blacks, Hispanics, and working class whites. Heretofore, that was a Democrat stronghold. He goes on to say, it turns out that Biden's policies and major legislative accomplishments are far more popular with activists, progressive activists, and college-educated cosmopolitans than with working-class voters. You think? It kind of alarms me when they start figuring it out. Democrats have been pitching their political message to the wrong audience, in effect, preaching mainly to the choir, and they need to adjust their aim. That starts by understanding what non-college voters actually want from political leaders, rather than what those leaders think they should want. To that end, the Progressive Policy Institute, where the author is the founder and president, commissioned a major YouGov survey of working class attitudes nationally and in seven key 2024 battleground states. Working Americans are acutely aware that the last 40 years haven't been great to them. Two thirds say they're worse off and economic pessimism is even higher in the critical swing states of Arizona, Michigan and Pennsylvania. By the way, the Cook political report just moved several states, including Michigan, toward lean Republican, by the way, right now, because it's so bad for Biden. The high cost of living is overwhelmingly 69% their top economic worry. So three years of Biden hasn't helped that one, has it? Bidenomics, working wonders for middle class. And little wonder, the economist Robert Shapiro reports that the annual wage income of working Americans corrected for inflation has declined by more than 3% compared to real wage gains of 4.1% under Trump. In other words, when Trump was in office, actual wages went up. Under Biden, they've gone down. Ask why prices have risen so much. 55% of these picked government went overboard with stimulus spending, overheating the economy, over the impact of the COVID recession and supply chain bottlenecks. So they're correctly identifying the government's gone on a spending spree. The Biden administration has laid heavy emphasis on reviving U.S. manufacturing. These voters, no doubt, would like to see that happen, but they are looking elsewhere when it comes to opportunities for their children. In other words, the Trump administration actually started bringing manufacturing back to this country. The Biden administration has done precious little to take advantage of that. It's almost like if it was working under Trump, they wanted to just crush it, drive a stake through it. Good afternoon, folks. Chad Adams, your guest host, sitting in for Brett Winterbull. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure to have been part of the WBT family in working with Vince Coakley and Pete Callender and this wonderful lineup here that this station has to still be the premier station for talk in the state of North Carolina, something that's needed more and more all over the state at this time, but uh, is sadly missing in many markets. Barbara, welcome to the show. Appreciate your call. What's on your brain today? Hi, Chad. And thank Howdy. you for giving Brett a much-needed break. Well, thank you. 
Uh, well deserved. I just wanted to tell you that I was I was born and raised in Mecklenburg County. And my family, my mama's side of the family and my dad's were very hard workers. And we were we were never brought up to have hate in our hearts for anybody. And I live in a very diversified neighborhood. And this neighborhood looks after each other. I live in the house that my dad lived in, and he had a garden, a big garden in his backyard, and he shared all of his vegetables with everybody. And it's just uh, so sad to hear about all the hate that is being distributed throughout the United States. People just need to learn to live with each other. And that's exactly what we do in my neighborhood. Well, Barbara, I I appreciate your call, number one. Number two, I happen to believe that the vast majority of Americans are like you to this day. I don't know your age. I would suspect that you probably attended more than a few Sunday school or vacation Bible schools growing up. And and your neighborhood is like the majority of my neighborhood is that way. I live on an island. The island community is kind of that way. And Chad, it I am 80 years young. There you go. Like I said, I had no idea, but I appreciate, you know, you sound like a very spry 80 and I'll give you that. So, but I think that the majority of this country, and you've lived through times, we've overcome some very difficult times in your lifetime, in mine too, but especially in yours. And and I do believe that the vast majority of Americans are like you. They are not filled with hate. They are not filled with resentment. It is unfortunate that the news media finds the angriest people and the, the most ideologically wackadoo people and goes and interviews them and puts them on the news as if that is what is very important right now. My and mom's it's, it's, family were sharecroppers. They moved from place to place in Mecklenburg County on dirt roads, herding their cows, and they worked side by side picking cotton been a long time i had a great my great grandfather did that in in lee county uh actually came up from the mecklenburg county area at the turn of the century and moved into the central part of the state and uh, did likewise and again got along i mean they, they it was just it's amazing how well we are capable of getting along when we try but Barbara, mama, i tell you I what there were there was probably 13 children in my mom's family wow and uh, mo- their mother passed away when the youngest daughter was born. And the whole family stuck together, thanks to my grandpa. And, well, I- um, you know, it just saddens me. Well, you need to keep the optimism up because there's a lot of people from your generation that had a huge impact on people in my generation and generations younger it isn't a lost cause you did make a difference your generation did your your father did and and so don't give up that hope i mean you've got you sound I'm not, very optimistic i'm not a, i'm good. not a give up <laughs> good we don't sound like it so i mean barbara how long have you been listening to talk radio oh for, honey i'm a rush baby <laughs> i figured you were but i had to ask so uh I'm i tell you what my, rush baby 
My my father was too. My 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 father passed away on the same day that Rush Limbaugh did. The same exact day. I oh lost Rush goodness. and my dad the same day. So, uh, I'm but Barbara, telling you, that was a sad day. I can remember exactly where I was when I heard it. Yeah, but I, I appreciate you on behalf of the WBT family. You're a longtime listener. That is appreciated. It matters, and I and I appreciate your optimism. I appreciate you calling, especially here at this time of year. And, and appreciate the kind words about bread as well, okay? I'm going to tell you what. I remember listening to Grady Cole. He was the one that we didn't have a television back in the day. We had a radio. And Grady Cole was what we broke up, woke up to every morning. Wow. Well, you know, there are some people in this market that – Remember that as well. So anyway, Barbara, thank you. Merry Christmas to you, and thank you for calling, okay? And Merry Christmas to you, Chad. And again, thank you for giving these guys at WBT a much-needed break. Okay. They they will definitely get the message, and I will, we will pass it along, okay? Thank you, Barbara. Um, and, and to Barbara's point, appreciate her call. She is, she is, she is symbolic of a lot of the, the talk show audience. You hear people, uh, more extremes, putting down talk radio audiences. But the talk radio, she is the talk radio audience. Whether 80, you know, we've got people that are that are in their teens that are listening to this, that have listened to radio. And a lot of people who thought heretofore that they were very left-leaning people, they listen to talk radio long enough. They start asking themselves questions, which is what talk radio does. It challenges many of the beliefs on the left and just says, hey, don't you don't have to agree or, with us. Go and check it out for yourself. Go explore for yourself the issues that we bring up, whether it's about property rights or taxes or free markets or capitalism or climate change, whatever it is. Do your own investigation. Challenge your beliefs. And by and large, like Reagan said, it's not, you know, that it's it's the it's that progressives are so wrong. And I'm paraphrasing what he said. It's not that they're not capable of talking. They're just more wrong than right, and that's the problem with a lot of this. And and the, the worst problem is when they do implement policies that are wrong, it hurts all of us more. So, but but uh, you know, a longtime listener to their WBT has a lot to be proud of with that family of people like Barbara that it helped build the station and make it the the powerhouse station it is and continues to be. And. Uh, I, I'm thankful for it. I, I wish there. I wish that WBT was syndicated all over the state because I do think that many markets are missing the opportunity to get decent talk radio. They, they they've been hunted down. Uh, the one in Wilmington was purchased by the people who started Rachel Maddow, and they eradicated that. Um, it's it just in many markets, it's not what it was. But much more to go. Hour three getting ready to be underway here. Chad Adams, your guest host, sitting in for Brett Winterbull. 704-570-1110. 704-570-1110 if you would like to be part of things. And do stick with us through the break. And Tony, do stick around if you can. Well, unless you just want me to comment. It sounds like you just wanted me to comment. And I will give you that. We'll be right back after this. third hour as we continue our excursion in WBT Radio's broadcast excellence. Chad Adams in for Brett Wonderful, taking some much needed time off here. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Tony, I appreciate the call. 
uh, uh, it's my understanding that you may not have stuck around. You're always welcome to. You want to get in on the conversation. 704-570-1110. Tony, you are there. How the heck are you, man? I am. Welcome to the show. Good. Don't be. What's up? (laughs) Yes, sir. What's up? I just, you know, Mr. Graham is a very intelligent person, very good legal mind. Okay. Well, let me do this. Let me, let me, let me, Tony, before you get started, let me tell the, the folks what you're talking about. We're talking about the race for governor. We're kind of starting off here the, the hour. And, and, and Tony, you, of course, know who you're talking about, which is Bill Graham. There are four or five folks running for, I think there's one, there's five people running for governor on the Republican side. One of them is obviously uh, Mark Robinson, the lieutenant governor of the state treasurer, Dale Falwell. Many of you have heard those names. A retired healthcare executive named Jesse Thomas. And uh, former state senator Andy Wells, I think he's from up in the Hickory area, but then also Bill Graham. Now, I'm going to let let people know that Bill Graham's a former attorney or is an attorney, and he kind of made a name for himself fighting the gas tax back in the early 2000s, ran unsuccessfully for governor later uh, against McCrory early on, not the second term, the first term. And now he's, he's, he's been very successful in life, a very accomplished attorney, and he's running for governor. And I'll let, let it go with that. Tony, go ahead. Tony, I don't know if Tony's walking around or listening. Okay, well, Tony, I, I think he wanted to know my thoughts on Bill Graham. I've met Bill a, a couple of times. Uh, he has all of the tools that you would think a successful lawyer would have. I mean, uh, he is conservative. He has, he did fight, and, and I think he made a lot of headway on the gas tax. He's very articulate in the way he communicates. He just didn't have the name ID. Doesn't have the name ID, and. It's you know I watched his early messaging in some of the he put these these kind of crime ads in more rural markets in the state where that it's more of an issue in the inner cities and I don't know if he's trying to get name ID in the inner cities but he needs those rural votes any Republican that wants to win the GOP nomination for governor in the state of North Carolina needs a preponderance of rural Republican votes uh, whether it's uh, Brunswick County or or, or Buncombe County, these these out even in the Northeast, you need to rack up these grassroots votes, and that's why when you when you look at I, I'm not even looking at polls, but just my feel for things is that Mark Robinson, who's been you know has the 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 articulation and enthusiasm of every great Southern preacher you've ever heard, he speaks with with this kind of command of presence that he has. I gave a speech behind him at a, uh, a constitutional thing. And he, he has a very confident presence that resonates with grassroots activists. I, I've known many grassroots activists that, that, that he has that charisma they like. Now, he doesn't have the background. He doesn't have, you know, kind of the success and background. He became a YouTube star uh, by being very outspoken and, and launches into lieutenant governor's position. And he's gotten himself in trouble a number of times with comments about Jews, comments about other things and, and the LGBTQ community. And, but it's still he's he's Trumpian with respect to I don't I don't think there's anything he could do at this point to shake grassroots activists away from supporting him. I think his team is keeping him kind of toned down a little bit, trying to ride out the, the, the Israel situation because of some of Robinson's comments. Dale Falwell, probably the most successful state treasurer we've ever had, um, doesn't have kind of the campaign that a lot of people had hoped he would. He, Dale's always relied on 
uh, giving 10, 12 speeches a day, being everywhere, explaining what's going on with the treasurer's office and running a very common sense approach. He's very soft-spoken. He's an extremely successful individual, served on school board, was in the legislature, been in the treasury, uh, treasurer, and also fixed North Carolina's uh, unemployment situation. An amazing resume, but it's not getting out into the masses, so to speak. So he's he's a much more faith-based guy with how he conducts his campaigning. Uh, Jesse Thomas, I don't think any healthcare executive is going to do very well in a Republican primary just because of the perception about hospitals and healthcare executives in general. That's no slight to Jesse, probably very successful, very nice fella. I do not know him. And then you've got uh, Andy Wells. I've known Andy for many years, knew him prior to being in office, and also a stand-up conservative guy. He uh, did some work and was closely aligned with the Locke Foundation while I was there and then after I left. But uh, a, a, another stellar individual. A lot of good people running. I don't know how it'll all shake out. I'm not going to pretend to have the inside. I, I do think right now it would be very difficult. The primaries in March for North Carolina, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, it's going to be very difficult unless one candidate implodes and another candidate comes into a remarkable run of getting out into the masses with, with a message it looks like it's Mark Robinson's to lose at this point in time, uh, and, and there are a lot there are a lot of astute conservatives that, that are, have problems with Robinson. I don't know how that'll translate with respect to, you know, how that how they'll come on board. I think there are some conservatives very concerned about the kind of administration that Robinson would run, and and what that would look like. Who would be the people calling the shots with him? Uh, we don't know who has who who does he listen to. We don't know. And and certainly some of the things he say, that he says and articulates. Plus, I think the Daily Haymaker, which is an, a fascinating website here in North Carolina that kind of pokes around in, in things, has unclo- uncovered some stuff that I think the the Democrats would like. Uh, and, and the Daily Haymaker is a very conservative website. It takes it takes the equal opportunity way of looking at, at folks from a conservative standpoint and it has issues with the fact that Mark Robinson, since being in office, his family has done very well uh, through the Office of Health and Human Services, uh, making quite a bit of money, not making any money prior to, including a bankruptcy and some other things. Hey, everybody makes mistakes in life. And then making a lot of money since being in office. His wife making a lot of money with government contracting in some ways. I, again, I'm not the expert there, but uh, it, it's it's a whole chicken soup out there on the Republican primary with one person clearly in the lead. And it's a matter of do, does their past or do the facts, do they have any import in the race? I don't know that they do, but we'll see. So it's Mark Robinson's to lose. And I don't think anyone takes on Josh Stein uh, heading into the governor's race, meaning because he's got Mike Morgan, former Supreme court justice, Mike Morgan running against him. I don't think that candidacy is going to go anywhere, but we'll see. Well, thank you so much, Bo and Beth. And I got to tell you, waking up each morning to y'all and WBT is even better than Christmas morning under the tree opening the presents. Well, you know what? You win. Forget the content. Pete, oh my gosh, Merry Christmas. I feel like uh, we've already won at life here in this segment. Yeah, I just feel like we did win at life. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Keep on keeping on. Hey, right <laughs> on. You too, my friend. Good morning, Bo fan. Good morning, BT. Tomorrow morning, 6 to 10 on WBT.
Have a holly jolly Christmas. It's the best time of the year. Welcome back, folks. I don't know. Chad Adams, you're having a blast, as always. I always do. Magnificent time. And I appreciate you being a part of the show here on the Brett the Brett Winterbull Show, I might add. It's not mine, it's Brett's. I'm just glad to be here. And I do want to welcome Josh. You've been holding Josh. Welcome to the broadcast this afternoon on the shortest day of the year. What's on your brain? Yes, sir. I just wanted to make a quick comment about the Colorado ruling on uh, President or former President Trump. Um, I think they're only making the guy more popular, in my opinion, because uh, you—it's almost like that rule of thumb saying, uh, "Kid, don't do that, don't do that," uh, and the kid wants to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that, it is that's just the point I wanted to make. Well, I, man, I appreciate Josh. I appreciate the call, and you're not alone. I mean, your your opinion is actually one that is quite widespread, and I, I the polls are starting to pick that up. So, what will happen is the real clear politics average. It's a rolling average, so they put the most the most present poll, the most recent polling, and they average it in with everything else. And so that number is going to creep up again. It's it, it's just like you said. You said the kid, you know, tell the kid not to do it. The kid wants to do it more. And it's kind of like he told you, the former president said, here's what they're going to do to me. And then they went, it's like they sat around a table and said, let's do exactly what the president said we're going to do and and, think, and expect a different result. And and so his fundraising, I mean, if you're, if you're in the junk email folders with all of this fundraising stuff, you'll see there's already hundreds of fundraising letters that have gone out to prospective donors about this. I mean, when they took the mug shot, did I, I, I don't know how many of you thought it was you know, it was a horrible day, but only someone like Trump could go out and turn it into a massive fundraising, putting the picture on mugs and t-shirts, and it just made it, it just made the left look petty. It made the Democrats look small and petty. And and even Lanny Davis, the the, the famed left-leaning, you know. Uh, pundit that had been around the Clintons forever. And he wrote an article over Real Clear Politics about this, saying essentially that he agreed with the detailed analysis of the majority opinion. In other words, he believes that Trump violated Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that he participated in an insurrection. Here's the thing. There's been no trial about that. It's not like someone filed charges about that and have convicted him of that. So the Supreme Court in Colorado went one step further and said, well, as if he had been convicted, thus he's not eligible to be on there. And Lanny Davis went a step further instead of saying he may agree with 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 what he believes Trump had did, but he said it's not good for the country, not good for the rule of law, not good for the former president to be barred from running in 2024 without due process, which means a trial, the right to cross-examination, and a verdict beyond a reasonable doubt. The irony you know, he goes on to, to go about uh, Trump. He can't stand Donald Trump. Not surprising. He's a he's a hardened, lifelong partisan Democrat. But the point is, even he sees the the danger of what's going on. He sees the danger that his own party. So the Democrats don't have issues to run on. I think abortion is the issue. They're gonna. That's all they've got. So they've, they've got. They don't have foreign policy. And I'll get to that also. We've got that that story's lined up. They don't have foreign policy to rely on. Their foreign policy has been a joke. It's been horrific. Even other foreign leaders don't believe anything the Biden administration says. They're not afraid of us. We've been attacked 120 times since October 7th at various military outposts throughout the Middle East. Uh, We have been feckless in our response to it. 
nothing, nothing organized. And so it's like, okay, we'll just keep throwing bombs and missiles and at, at U.S. infantry and, and, and positions and Air Force bases all over the place. The, the, red, the, the free market doesn't believe in the Biden administration because they're rerouting boats around you know, South Africa. They're rerouting boats around South Africa, which will take a lot longer. New Year's supplies are going to be delayed because they don't believe that the Red Sea is safe to go through and the Suez Canal to get their boats through that area because they're going to be boarded by Yemeni's pirates. They do not, the Houthis, they do not believe the Biden administration or the Americans are going to help protect free trade. The Europeans are feckless. So they don't have foreign policy. They don't have domestic policy. Domestic people don't feel safer now than they did three or four years ago. They don't feel more economically strong than they did three or four years ago. You know, the old saying, are you better off? They're not better off. People are not better off. The Biden administration has been a profound disappointment to the people on the left. And they're, they're finally so divided, even on this Palestinian thing, the Biden administration's being friendly to Israel and, and the Palestinian left in this country, which is bizarre. There's not a Palestine, but be that as it may, they're going ballistic on the Biden administration, calling him, in, in, accusing him of genocide. It's bizarre. So there's really nothing other than abortion, abortion and hatred. I'm sorry. They do have two issues. Apologies. I, the host was wrong. They have abortion. And they have hatred of Trump. Those are their two issues. And I, I think they they truly wish they could derail the Trump presidential run by getting something to stick. So they have thrown everything in New York, D.C., Atlanta, and now Colorado. They, and they're still, you know, we still got to go back to the situation, not just Letitia James, but the other situation in, in New York, Alvin Bragg's situation. They're throwing everything they can, hoping they can get something to stick, and that'll derail Donald Trump. They believe they can beat anybody else because it, the, the issue, and it's a gamble. There's a big gamble going on. The gamble for the Republicans is that Trump does somehow get incarcerated, but that'll be adjudicated. It could be put off till after he becomes president, and then it could become null and vo void. But that's the gamble the Democrats are taking. And instead, they did have the option. They do have the option of running on issues and just acting like they're in a presidential race, but they're not. Do you have, do you, and I'm speaking to the Democrats out there, do you as Democrats feel that the Biden, the Biden team, the team Biden, by the way, the worst campaign so far, one of the most lackluster campaigns, one that hasn't gotten off the ground, it's raised some money, but it hasn't gotten off the ground. It hasn't defined its campaign, really. Do you as Democrats feel that the campaign is going to be about issues for the Democrats. And I will get to the other half of that column that we went the, the top of the last hour. It's a Democrat excoriating. They've lost. They're losing support amongst blacks. They're losing support amongst Hispanics. They're losing support amongst working class. All, all three of those were go-to places for Democrats. They've lost a lot of that. They don't find a way back to it. So they don't have, there's other than abortion. And, and if you can run the entire nation, if you can be the leader of the free world on that issue alone, the problems that we face as a nation are far bigger than I could articulate on this show. They're more profound. They're more deep. If that's the one issue, and I want to believe that our fellow Americans are deeper than that one issue. They are. I was hopeful that the Democrats would at least put up a fight. I don't see them doing that. What I see is them putting up legal obstacles. They're using the power of government to stop a candidate and, and abortion. So if they can incarcerate Trump, they'll face whoever the proxy would be. 
for Trump, DeSantis or Haley or some combination therein, uh, or someone else that we don't know about right yet. But that is the problem that the Democrats have. They don't have the issues. They don't have a campaign. They have litigation. Oh, they do have one issue, an abortion. So we'll see how that all shakes out. So, Robert, you'll have to pardon me for just a second because I want to get to your call, but I want to tee it up a little bit because talk radio is fun. And I appreciate all the audience joining us this afternoon. You would like to get on the conversation at 704-570-1110. You can call. You'll get in just like Robert's about to. A lot going on. Chad Adams sitting in for Brett Winterbull here this afternoon in this third hour. Robert has said that the damage is done for Biden. So I, I'm I'm curious. I'm curious. Is it damage done to Biden or damage Biden's done to secure himself? I'll turn it over to you, Robert. What's on your brain? Oops, just one second. Uh, <laughs> You're um, on. <laughs> I, I just think um, I heard that John Kirby is going to – there's some kind of meeting set up with the – Mexican president uh, in the next few days to talk about um, the 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 disaster at our border. Um, the damage is done because so many millions of illegal immigrants have come in. So it, three years into this administration, any any uh, thing to slow that uh, slow the, slow that pace down is, is just is, is just going to be a fig leaf um, or a band aid. On a problem where where we've already we, we've already lost that war, um, and also on inflation. Even though gas is down, I, I call it like I see it. Gas is down back in the back in the twos. That's a good thing. But but in so many other areas uh, where we have to spend money at restaurants, the grocery store, etc., the, the prices are so much higher than they were three years ago that even though the the rate of inflation has has slowed. The damage is done there, so it's done. It's done on uh, immigration, and it's done on inflation. Now, I, I completely agree. And so, let me take it a step further. Do you? What do you think the repercussions of that damage are for Team Biden? I'm sorry, I, I couldn't quite. I, I I couldn't quite understand your well, question. I, I think I may have. Well, okay, well, and I do apologize. Okay. I'll, I'll try. It's okay, Robert. I appreciate your call, and, and this happens sometimes. So do you think there will be any repercussions? Do you think that Biden will pay a price at the ballot box or Democrats will be hurt by this? What do you think happens as a result of all of this you just articulated? Oh, well, I, I think we're still basically a 50-50 country. I think it'll be a very close election. But unlike when Biden ran uh, the first time, he now has a record, and his record is I think I could name probably 15 areas where his record is very, very difficult to defend. Um, and I think I could also name 15 areas where President Trump, uh, I'm a conservative, where, where President Trump has a record that, that speaks for itself. So I, I believe even if it's President Trump who goes up against Biden, I, my thought is that, is that uh, the third time, the, the rubber match, I think it'll go to, I think it'll go to Trump because Biden's record is so bad, and he is just so obviously feeble mentally and physically. 
Well, Robert, I, I again, you affirm my belief in listeners of talk radio. I think that that was a uh, spot on. I, you know, you, Kamala Harris was going to deal with the root causes, and that was going to stop immigration. And instead, it just turned the avalanche on water over the bridge. And it's you know, you you mentioned about the damage already be done. I wrote down to myself as you were talking. I was like, it's like if your house were to burn down, and now we're talking about just trying to save the garage. You know, the damage is done. Three million plus. We've got three million waiting for hearings, and that doesn't include the the gotaways. So to your point on that, and then inflation, I, I think it's take the kitchen table. I said that day one on Monday. Ultimately, people vote on kitchen table issues. And I think when you're looking at your kitchen table and looking at how far, you know, 40, 80, $100 goes at the grocery store, it's been very damaging to the American family. I think they've had to make tougher choices. It's, uh, it's a different world. So, Robert, I appreciate the phone call. And thank you for listening. Thank you. And Merry Jeff. Christmas. Okay. Uh, as always, you know, I, I, one, one of the things I love most and have forever on talk radio is the listener input, that listeners make a profound impact. And, you know, they get beaten up. A li- the liberal media hates listeners to talk radio. They've done everything they can to destroy talk radio. They've tried to say it's dead. It's not going anywhere. It's a format that's toast. That no one's, you know what? They are listening and they're going to continue to. And even on podcasts, a lot of conservatives are doing very well there. Because it's timely and it's topical. That's one thing that's great, especially here in Mecklenburg, you know, where there's so many things that happen. Mecklenburg's kind of a bellwether in some ways because it has the ongoing, captures the ongoing battle very well. If you were to look at, you know, Union and Gaston and, and Cabarrus and these counties in the periphery that are far more conservative than maybe Mecklenburg or certainly than downtown Charlotte, you get kind of the feel of kind of a microcosm of the state. You, you see the ongoing battle lines being drawn and you also see when the epic failures happen uh with left and right it mostly left almost exclusively left until the right overshoots like house bill two or they try to be something they're not you see that with a preponderance of commercials that are flying everywhere right now but but by and large talk radio to me shows the hope of the country it shows it has a diverse audience it has an audience that's plugged in it has an audience that's paying attention it has an audience that cares. It has an audience that, by and large, is very accepting also, th- that is that is very much a tolerant audience. It's, it's so weird. The left projects that the right's not tolerant. It's just the opposite. They are the least tolerant. Progressives are extremely intolerant. If you, if, if, you, if you don't get that, go look at all of this anti-Israel stuff on college campuses. They're not tolerant. Look at the, the, the ultimate, all these progressive movements. If you were to try to have a reasonable discussion, they are not tolerant. Look at the climate change crazies that that crazy glue their hands to the concrete or throw paint on works of art. They're not tolerant people. These are antagonistic anarchists. Look at the people that took over the the chop zone in Seattle. They weren't tolerant people. The people that were trying to burn down the cities across this country in in the wake of George Floyd. Those people morphed into BLM, which morphed into Antifa, which morphed into the pro-Palestinian movement. It's the same people. It's the same agitated professional agitators that you wonder, how many of you have the time to just fly to New York and take part in a protest? How did they get to New York? Where did they get the money from to do that? This is this is an intentionally antagonistic group of individuals, and they're not that many. They just happen to be the same players over and over, and it makes it look like there's millions and millions. There's not that many of them. They're an agitated few that get a, get a, a lion's share of attention from media that's looking for the latest and greatest shiny object. That's looking for the latest flash in the pan to make you look and say, oh, wow, things are bad. 
The lead up to the Icelandic volcano was one of those. It was going to blow the southern tip of Iceland off, right? And blow volcano, molten lava. I mean, it can happen anytime and disrupt airflow and air travel and cause all sorts of ice problems in Europe. Could happen here, too. You never know. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas everywhere you go. It's a bing. Good guys, old school. Take a look in the five and ten. Listening once again. Nice. With candy. These guys are great. I love. I love they. they I, it's always fun trying to figure out where they're going to go on the bumper side of things. But I love it. I love it. WBT. Chad Adams here. It's uh, about a tw- I don't know eleven minutes, ten minutes before the top of the hour. And appreciate all the phone calls today. You guys have been fantastic. 704-570-1110. 704-570-1110. Here on News Talk 1110-993-WBT, Chad Adams sitting in for Brett Winterbull, taking some much-needed time off at the shortest day of the year. The solstice. The solstice for all you Wiccans out there. The solstice. You know, if you're a big study of history, then you kind of see the blending of Certain pagan stuff and uh, Christian stuff, right? This time of year, kind of, even at Easter? I don't know. That's a different discussion for a different time. Now, having said that, we were talking be- before a number of phone calls came in, and which are always appreciated, that even the left is very concerned because there's an attrition rate that's going on right now that's mystifying. Well, it's not mystifying. It was mystifying Democrats at first, but now they've kind of gotten a handle on it. Say, hey, we've been playing, you know, the, the wackadoos that we see in all these, all these, you know, churned up angry protests and stuff they've been pandering to that group of individuals whether it's on climate change or or turning on the the spigot of government funding the the non-inflation reduction act all these things are always geared toward a small group and they affect all of us it's not resonating the the are you better off people there aren't people that are better off i'm always amazed at people that think there isn't a problem in the the economy's great economy's great so back to the, the piece on the Hill where Democrats are pointing out, this is a problem. We're losing voters across the spectrum. Turns out that Biden's policies and major legislative accomplishments are far more popular with activists and college-educated cosmopolitans than working-class voters. Democrats have been pitching their political message to the wrong audience. They need to change their aim. They won't. There's an arrogance there. They're just not going to. Because they think, it's as I said, it's the Potemkin presidency. Biden, the lens through which the Biden administration sees the world is that things are rosy. They're just misunderstood, that they've been doing great things. And we're a bunch of ingrates for not appreciating the the grandness of Plugs Biden and his son, that the entire Biden administration is great. And he has no. And and I agree with the previous caller. Biden didn't really have an executive record prior to the last election. He does now. And it's not a good one. Working Americans are acutely aware that the last 40 years haven't been kind to them. Two-thirds say they are worse off and economic pessimism even higher. By the way, also massive indebtedness to the nation through that, that both parties own. The high cost of living is the overwhelming issue, 69%, the top economic worry. Little wonder. Robert Shapiro, economist, reports that the average annual wage income has gone down under Biden, went up under Trump. Ask why prices have risen so much. 55% say government went overboard with spending and stimulus and overheating the economy. Yep. The Biden administration had laid heavy emphasis on reviving U.S. manufacturing, but people aren't seeing it that way. The Trump administration brought it back, not Biden. Their top choice, 44% of all voters, 57% for Hispanics, was the communications and digital sector. Only 13% saw their kids working in manufacturing. 
The iconic blue-collar workers in manufacturing and construction constitute only a third of today's non-college workforce. There are many more workers and women in healthcare, retail, hospitality. That likely helps to explain why these working-class voters don't see a strong connection between union membership. That's a big checkbox for Democrats, by the way. But unions have fallen out of favor, except in government. So the government workers that kind of always liked the Democrats started to unionize, and that's pretty much the only backbone of unions now is more and more public sector stuff like teachers and, and workers that because it's fallen out of favor. They don't see a strong connection between union membership and upward mobility. 6% say joining a union would be the best way to acquire a good job and career. Only 15% saw a federal push for stronger unions as important. So you have to wonder, if it's so bad, why would Democrats keep pushing it? Unions are not, they're just not what they used to be. Another progressive priority that Biden has championed, college loan forgiveness, badly misfired with voters, even though many of them report some college, a mere 11% favor the loan forgiveness. That's an 11% issue, and the Biden administration is proud of it. While a whopping 56%, including 59% of independents and 51% of Hispanics, say paying off this debt isn't fair to the majority of Americans who don't get college degrees, or even the, the, the Americans that got college degrees and paid them off. Only 9% believe a college degree would help them most to get ahead. What they want instead is more public investment in apprenticeships and career pathways, 74%. Plus affordable short-term training programs. Once our survey confirms that Democrats, this is a Democrat survey, by the way, confirms that Democrats have forfeited their title as the party of the prosperity for the working class. Working class voters trust Republicans more to manage a growing economy, promote entrepreneurship, keep the debt and deficits under control, and handle crime, immigration, and national security. The GOP also has the edge on important cultural or values dimensions, protecting personal freedom, strengthening private enterprise, and respecting hard work and individual initiative. The Democrats are in free fall on every one of those issues, and this isn't a, this isn't a conservative saying that. These are Democrats saying that this is their survey. Democrats are trusted more to combat climate change, not a big issue with voters, manage the clean energy transition connected to climate change, and protect reproductive freedoms, which, by the way, nobody's stopping you from reproducing, just FYI. I love it when Democrats say that, but that's their that's their word salad stuff that they toss out there. They sprinkle a little, I don't know, favorability and say, ah, reproductive freedom. They have a disconcertedly narrow lead on respecting Democrat institutions and elections. I think both parties have destroyed that. I think if you look at the CDC, you look at the FBI, you look at almost every agency, pick three letters in the alphabet, you've probably named an agency. Milton Friedman would say it's probably an agency you could get rid of. Pick any three letters in the alphabet. But but those institutions have brought a pox on their own houses. And Democrats have a very tiny lead on that. Because we just don't trust it. Democrats are more likely to trust government than Republicans, but by five points, it used to be like 40. The survey also suggests Democrats would be wise to temper progressive enthusiasm for a more powerful federal government committed to wealth distribution. 19% of non-college voters favor that position. 34% embrace the conservative goal of a small government that spends and taxes less. 47% choose a pragmatic middle option, a federal government that actively steers the economy, but mostly by promoting free markets. So you see where people are going. It's just unbelievable. The Democrats are in free fall on issue after issue after issue. And they have no intent of turning around. Now, does that mean they'll lose? The weird thing is, in some ways, 
the people that want to assert that Trump is polarizing, the Demo- that's the one thing. I told you they have two issues. They have abortion and they have Trump. And the Trump issue for them is that in spite of every one of the issues I just went through, that somehow the people will despise Trump enough that they'll vote against their own economic interest and choose Biden, even though they know it's going to lead to their economic ruin. It's a bizarre, it's an Alice in Wonderland way of looking at things, isn't it? Big is small, small is big. Things are closer than further. They're further, but they actually feel closer. I don't Fourth hour getting ready to be underway here on WBT. My pleasure to be with you so far, but right now, we're going to take a little break and we'll be right back after this. Appreciate you being a part of the broadcast here. Hour number four, if you would like to call as, as we finish up the darkness times of the show. Now, I don't mean darkness with respect to attitude. I mean darkness because it's flipping dark outside. 704-570-1110, 704-570-1110. And it's been an absolute, it is. I'll be here tomorrow as well. And then next week, helping out with Calendar on Tuesday through Friday, taking a break on Christmas as we all, uh, many of us do. Now, I, 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 this story broke while we were on the air and it's, it's going to be much discussed. And it, it, it gives you an indication of how crazy litigious we are. I, you know, I'm reminded there's a there's a movie called Thank You for Smoking, and I remember the 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 protagonist in that movie is a he is a lobbyist for the smoking industry, and his kid's doing a homework inside, and he says, "Dad, what's the greatest thing about America?" And his dad's not really paying attention because he's into his own little world of doing stuff, and he says, "Oh, America's endless uh, appeals process, the endless appeals, the, the litigation process. We see this unfolding with Trump, and I think that's why." The former president isn't as he's been involved in litigation for 50 years. It's the lifeblood of trying to develop stuff in New York. It's it's litigation, litigation, litigation. And it's it's a shame that fewer and fewer Americans are able to say, hey, I lived my life without a lawsuit. We are the most litigious nation on the face of the planet Earth. And it's, it's kind of shameful. I remember when I was traveling in New Zealand for a while and uh, met a lawyer and it was just kind of bizarre because the lawyer was, you know, I said, you know, what do you do? And he's, I'm a booster. And I was like, oh, so you, you guys are a bunch of law stuff. He says, no, down here, we're not like you, you Yanks. We're not like you guys at all. We just kind of settle estates, handle divorces, but uh, even those are limited. So we're very limited in what we do down here. But that's just the nature of the way America is. Now, I say that because we have, we, the citizens of North Carolina, have been involved in a case involving what's called the Leandro case. Now, many of you who are listeners to talk radio, that name rings a bell. You'll you'll know it has something to do with education and the way state spends money. That case was filed in 1994. It was Hope County Board of Education versus the state of North Carolina, known as the Leandro, for the original plaintiff. It was filed in 1994, so it was filed 30 years ago by families and school boards in lower-income counties that alleged the state was not providing an adequate education. The Supreme Court first sided with the plaintiffs in 1997 and in 2004, finding the state responsible for providing a sound basic education, and it wasn't doing it. The state Supreme Court ruled in November of last year that state executives need to transfer whatever remained of the $1.75 billion required under the plan for the 21-22 year and 22-23 years 
The entire eight-year plan calls for $5 billion more through 2028. By the way, this is all taxpayer dollars. You, it's you. You're going to pay for it. But attorneys for legislative leaders have argued the Supreme Court hasn't settled whether its findings in 2004 should apply to all North Carolina schools because not all schools provided evidence for the case. Attorneys for the school boards and the families and some state entities argue the Supreme Court addressed this in 2022, ruling and that lawmakers are attempting to get a more favorable court to rehear the case. In 2022, the state courts held a 4-3 Democrat majority. The court agreed to take the case back up just weeks after it flipped to the Republicans to a 5-2 Republican majority in 2023. So it's going to have its court date with the new group on February the 22nd. So you'll be hearing a lot more about the Leandro case. And, and it, it was interesting. It kind of predates charter schools. There's so many different aspects of this case that have, and it, it, in many people have argued, are we really trying to deal with education via the courts? Because you had one judge, I think it was Howard Manning. I could get there wrong, but I think that made this ruling. So you end up with one individual that decided how billions should be spent. It, it's it's an interesting way that litigation kind of usurps the power of the legislative leaders. And again, we're very confused in the state as to who runs education anyway, because you have a state superintendent, you have the state board of education, you have the governor who likes to claim educational uh, leadership as you do the house and the Senate, which claim their own because they appoint some school board members, the school board, state school board, very left-leaning has been for decades. And the superintendent is Republican, Catherine Truitt. Many would argue very moderate Republican and the best of times. And then you have your local superintendents, your local school boards. It's it's a mess. We don't know. And it's unfortunate that you can't really hold people accountable that are in education. There's no real accountability. You don't know who to blame when it's all screwed up. And I, I think that had a lot to do with the success of charter schools in our state. School choice. You're going to see those vouchers. Democrats hate vouchers. It's starving the local. Do you realize? Do you realize if public schools were doing a, an outstanding job, a couple of things would also be true. One, charter schools would not would not be successful because if the if the local schools were doing a bang up job, kids wouldn't be leaving them. Parents wouldn't be pulling their kids out of the schools. Number one. Number two, uh, private schools would be marginal at best. Number three, homeschools would almost be what parent wants to take on that if they really felt the public education, the government run was doing a great job. Homeschoolers wouldn't be as popular. And it's one of the it's the fastest growing group of individuals. If you were to take all of the homeschoolers and put them in one school system, I think they'd be like the uh, three or four, fourth largest school system in the state. There's that many homeschool kids now. That's issue number four. Issue number five is that, again, if, if the state wanted to learn, again, if the state wanted to learn something from charter schools, they would be doing it better, but they're not. So Democrats saying you're taking money away from public education, it is a chicken and egg argument. The truth of the matter is the Democrats have failed in providing that great education, parents have chosen to leave with their kids, and that is the problem that public education. So rather than be better, here's the argument Democrats make for this. So Democrats say, well, we just need to give more money to education and everything will be fixed. We give more money for teachers. We give more money here. We give more money there. And everybody, if we just gave every kid a $100 bill and they walked out, their SATs would be perfect. And we'd all sing Kumbaya and go back home for a nice winter break. It's not that way, um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens.
I love driving these these lefties crazy. These people online, they crack me. They're still anonymous. One called Blondes. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Something about Blondes for Biden. Yeah, Blondes for Biden. So it, it's just hilarious that uh, <laughs> they, they said, oh, yeah, he's journalist. If journalists cared, they, he would talk about Congress and they're not passing anything. Blah, 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 blah. And it's so funny. I said, one, I'm a talk show host. If I was a journalist, and, and I have been, I would say things differently, write things differently. Not only that, I would challenge my own assumptions and tell her that part. But I said, look, I'm honest about who I am. I'm a conservative, not ashamed of that. And hey, many of people in, in my world like Congress doing very little, leaving people alone, not spending money, not passing new legislation. I literally wrote that back. And not five seconds after I wrote that, Monica Crawley said uh, Congress posted Congress passed the fewest laws in decades in 2023, according to a report. And she even said they say that like it's a bad thing. No, sometimes government doing less means it's doing more. It's a good thing when Congress is doing less. It's 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 just blondes for Biden. The fact that you don't understand organizations is your problem, not mine. In the past, we've had divided chambers. They still were productive. (laughs) It's just these people are they just don't have the sense God gave a cucumber. It amazes me that they have enough intellectual capacity to walk upright. It it it's it's just ugh. it is what they are. They 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 can't help it. They they just are that way. Um I did mention the Leandro case. It it's going to be adjudicated uh coming in in uh uh February. And, and that's an ongoing, like I said, 30 years that's been winding its way through the courts uh, saying, so this is the amazing thing. It wasn't, it hasn't been finished yet. So in the past 30 years, does that mean kids haven't gotten an education in 30 years? I mean, the kids that entered the school system when that case started are now having, have had kids. And some of the kids that were in school, the 18 year olds in 1994 are now like 50. <laughs> they're, they're, some of them are grandparents. They've had a whole generation go through the school system uh, since that case was fought. That, that's what it's These cases kind of upend themselves when you realize, well, school systems kind of went on. Charter schools started. An entire movement erupted. Homeschoolers blossomed. So many more things happened. Isn't that a good thing? I think that's a great thing. So, ah, we'll spend. Now, I, uh, a couple of things that are interesting. I, I'll get to it. I don't even know how I'm going to. It's so complicated. Um, it's long. I'm not going to go through all of it. But it, but it, but I think I'm not. So this is not me. I share a lot of. I share the belief about what I'm getting ready to share in many ways. I share the belief that I'm going to. I believe and I agree with a lot of what's getting ready to be said. But it looks like they're doing. A, there's an opinion piece over at MSN of all places, a Microsoft offshoot. And for the past few years, and this is interesting because it's from Microsoft, and so you have to wonder why they would write this. For the past few years, parents, researchers, and the news media have paid clo- news media's the news media have paid closer attention to the relationship between teens' phones and their mental health. Researchers like Jonathan Haidt and Gene Twinge have shown that various measures of student well-being began a sharp decline around 2012 throughout the West, just as smartphones and social media emerged as the, atten- the attentional centerpieces of teenage life. 
Some have even suggested that smartphone use is so corrosive, it's systematically reducing student achievement. The Program for International Student Assessment conducted by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Now try to put that on a business card. That's a big, long group. In almost 80 countries every three years, test 15-year-olds in math, reading, and science. It is the world's most famous measure of student ability. Most years, when the test makes contact with American news media, it provides instant ammunition for critics of America's school system who point to the PISA, that's what they're known as, the PISA scores, and ask something like, why are we getting crushed by Finland in reading, or why are we getting smoked by Korean math? The latest report has a different message. Yes, Americans scored lower in math than in any other year in the history of the test, which began in 2003. Once again, the test recorded America's persistent inequalities. Black and Hispanic students on average scored below Asian and white students, who typically do about as well as their peers around the world. But COVID learning loss was even worse elsewhere, creating what the authors of the PISA report called an unprecedented drop in performance around the world, nearly three times as large. And, and government officials own a lot of that, don't they? The deepest, most interesting story is that test scores have been falling for years, even before the pandemic. And the science scores peaked in 2009. Reading scores peaked in 2012. Since then, developed countries as a whole performed increasingly poorly. No single country showed an increasingly positive trend in any subject, according to the report. Many countries showed increasingly poor performance in at least one subject, even in famously high-performing countries like Finland, Sweden, and South Korea. Grades in one or several subjects have been declining. What's driving down the student scores? The PISA report offers three reasons. First, it finds that students who spend less than one hour of leisure time on digital devices at school scored 50 points higher in math than students who look at their screens all the time. This gap held even more, adjusting for socioeconomic factors. For comparison, a 50-point decline in math scores is about four times larger than America's pandemic era loss for that subject. Second, screens seem to create a general distraction throughout the school, even for students who aren't, aren't looking at them. The director of PISA survey wrote that students who report feeling distracted by their classmates' digital habits scored lower in math. Finally, nearly half of students across the entire spectrum said that they felt nervous or anxious when they didn't have their devices near them. Phone anxiety was negatively correlated with math scores. And if you have uh, anyone in your house under the age of 25, think, if you're listening to this, if grandkids, kids, friends, think about the last time you saw them without a phone either in their hand or on their body. It's amazing. Kids come to our house. I, I'm astounded when they're home. It's never, it's never out of arm's reach. In sum, students who spend more time staring at their phones do worse in school, distract other students around them, and feel worse about their life. And that's a sad, I mean, how do you fix that? You can't, if you ban phones in school, that'd be a bold and novel experiment. It might not work, but the fallacy is believing that doing nothing is harmless. So we know. So here's an instance where it's not like COVID. It's not like you're guessing. It's not like you're imagining things. This is something very real. What do you do? What group has the courage to try something without imposing on, you know, kids don't have as many rights as adults do. But what do you do? If you're in public education, why isn't, any, why isn't Randy Weingarten screaming about this? Why isn't, why isn't this a subject for debate in more places? You would think, you know, Leandro, billions of dollars, we're worried. We say we're worried about student performance. We say we're worried. But since 2012, you know, these students have become surgically attached to their devices, can't be without them. 
You take them away, their mental state, their anxiety goes through the roof. We're at a time where record high depression, record high fentanyl use, record high addiction to digital devices. By the way, dating, have you noticed how your kids date these days? It's not like they meet, interact. I mean, some do, but fewer. Again, it's a generalization. Some meet and get to know one another and date just like normal. But the vast majority are swipe swipe left, swipe right dating apps. It's a much shallower way to develop a relationship. It works for some people. But by and large, there aren't that many. I'm astounded at the kids. Kids come home, and their life is very different than the life I had in college. Extremely different than the life I had in college. I'm not putting it down. I'm saying it's a it's 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 something we've never experienced before. So how do you how do you adjust human behavior with something we have zero experience? It's like an alien encounter. We don't know how to. We know that what's happening isn't good, and we know that how it was before. But we can't go back to how it was before. You can't unring that bell. So what do you do? Well, we got something has to be done. That we can't. This is not a. A sustainable, that's the word the left likes. It's not a sustainable way to be. It's not a sustainable way to be. As in the middle of writing, and we're back. Chad Adams here sitting in for Brett Winterbull here at News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. If you would like to get in, uh, the final two segments here today, give us a call at 704-570-1110, 704-570-1110. Yes, yeah, see, I'm all amped up, and here it is, the end, you know, and I'm still going 100 miles an hour. Uh, thankful for you guys. Thankful, WBT, by the way, the guys on the board, TJ, all those guys doing a great job. I appreciate it each and every time. I don't say it enough, so I'll say it now. Getting trolled on uh, on the social media, I'm at Chad. Ch- <laughs> You know what? I'm just going to delete what I was getting ready to write out there. But uh, if, if you're interested in following me out there, you can. It's, the, it's at Chad Adams. It's the Chad Adams perspective because I love coming out here and doing what I do. I, I had the accusation that, oh, he claims to be a journalist. No, I'm not. I have been a journalist, but I don't claim to be one now. I'm a talk show host. I'm an opinion person. I have opinions. It's, this is so funny. They, they just throw things at you. They don't want to debate. And they, they, you know, one was talking about Congress should do more. And I said, hey, Congress is doing very little. I like that. I like it when they've passed fewer laws this year than many years in the past. I'm like, that's fantastic news, the less they trample on us. But having said that, I was going to get into an article about degrowth. And if you hear that phrase, so the American Institute on Economic Research has a great uh, seminal article, I would say, on what's called degrowth, the degrowth movement it uh, identifies with social control, ownership of property. Uh, it, it basically is an ends to a mean to get to socialism. It, the left constantly changes phrases and changes meanings to get to where it wants to go. And, and it wraps new meanings, sustainable, you know, wokeism. All, it, so it, when it becomes unpopular, they just change the word. And then they have a new word, and people forget, oh, what does this word mean? And, and then you think it's a new movement. It's not. It's the same old movement put in new clothes and then paraded out in front of you. So when, when you do hear that, and you will, you know, for the most part, proponents of socialism tend to see private property as the problem that leads to human misery and environmental degradation. In turn, they prescribe political control over resources as a way to ameliorate those problems. 
By contrast, proponents of capitalism, freedom of human action, argue that private property is the solution to allow peaceful arrangements that arise from conflicts over resources. In turn, private ownership provides incentives for conservation and husbanding of resources by their own. In other words, if we have a mutual benefit in, in establishing trade and stuff, we want to take care of those resources. Government's really bad at this kind of stuff. It, I mean, if you look at the history of Yosemite, I mean, if you want to educate yourself, look at the history of government's action at Yosemite National Park and see that those policies nearly led to the decimation of wildlife populations because they thought they could actively manage it and get rid of the wolves. What they did with fires and how they didn't allow fires to burn and, and certain seeds wouldn't germinate, wouldn't grow, and it led to really intense fires because of the buildup of debris they built up. And then when the fires did come through, they were so intense, they sterilized the soil. So, it, I mean, you can look at where government does things badly and you have to question. But these these trolls online, are they have such a limited, narrow, pointy uh, approach that you can't even reason with them. But where I do want to get to, and and it's – uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to go through this. It, I think it's very well written. It's going to sound a little pushy and a little edgy, but I'll go through it anyway. It's, it's Tom uh, Klingenstein who wrote it. He called it The Hour is Getting Late. It's going to take this segment and most of the rest, I believe. Um, it's written in such a way to let you know that um, it, it, it's, it's tight out there. And here's what he writes. He said, America today exists in a state of war, a cold Civil War. On one side is the woke regime. On the other, uh, the other side, more like our side, is the American regime. The woke regime defines justice as group outcome equality. For the American regime, on the other hand, justice is a reward for individual merit. A regime based on merit will always give rise to group differences. These two regimes are utterly irreconcilable. You can't admit people to college, flight training, law schools, or anything else according to merit, and at the same time according to group quotas. It's one or the other. There is no middle ground, hence the two sides are implacable enemies. That is what makes it a war. The woke left understands this too often. The American side, especially its political leadership, does not. You don't win a war if you don't know you're in one. The woke side fights. They show us no mercy. We, on the other hand, wring our hands and take a beating. We try to reach across the aisle, but in a war, this is a sucker's game. The woke regime is comprised of a loose confederation of our most important institutions, media, academia, government, charitable foundations, and corporations, particularly big tech. The George Floyd riots show this confederation in action. Woke agitators sparked the flames that lit the riots. The regime's intellectual leaders justified the riots. Its corporate donors gave billions to Black Lives Matter's network. Its media looked the other way. Its justice system freed the criminals who did it, and its security apparatus and political leaders fanned the flames. No, not all Democrats are woke leftists, but virtually all Democrats go along, so they might as well be. The woke regime is an incipient or soft totalitarianism that seeks to control all aspects of public and private life. Those who disagree, who dissent from the woke regime, are treated as enemies of the state. Dissenters are canceled, sometimes even fired, or denied financial services or legal representation. Law-abiding citizens are intimidated by violent mobs. The FBI targets Trump voters. The military is more concerned about skin color and gender identity than national defense. The woke leftists rewrite our history, making it a story of oppression and nonstop racism instead of teaching our kids to love and cherish their country. The woke left is teaching them to hate it. At times, we must ask our young men to die for their country, unfortunately, but they would. But why would anyone die for a country that is worthy of disdain? The woke leftists 
make war on the traditional mother, family, family, and religion and the healthy values they nurture. They encourage climate alarmism and manufacture foreign energy dependence. This is not so much about concern for the environment. It's about destroying the American way of life. They usher in millions of illegal immigrants that have cultures different from our own. This, too, is about destroying America, either by design or supreme indifference. Whatever the case, the woke leftists are paving the way for the woke regime. I mean, thus far, I think this is, a, is one of the most outstandingly succinct summations of kind of where we find ourselves in a nonviolent way, but articulating what's at stake. I'll continue. The, 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 that last part was mine. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us. And I mean that with all the affection it implies. You guys are appreciated more than you know. It's, it's, I, I, what I love about, <laughs> there's so many things I love about this country and so many things I love about people that, and it's the, look, life, life for the better part of human existence is a great deal of drudgery. It really is. It's not easy. It's challenging. It's difficult. And we conservatives know that. It's not fair. Uh, nature's not fair. It, it, it's, and so when you have those moments that, that are so clear and that are so nice and wonderful, it's hard. One of the most challenging things I've had in life is to learn to live in those great moments because they're fleeting and they pass. And when you're in them and you recognize you're in them, it can fulfill you so much more. And I, I, I wish all of our, our, my leftist progressive you know, antagonists out there, I wish them happiness. I wish they could find – I think they're miserable people, and they can't stand it when someone else is happy. And um, I, I hope they find it. I hope they can. And so many of my friends that are former lefties that became more conservative are much happier people, especially ones that, that found faith in you – know, faith in God gives meaning and purpose to human life kind of folks. They are much happier people. So I I – I, I empathize with people who who are full of hate. It is not beneficial to them. It's not beneficial to the folks around them. Now, back to Tom Klingenstein's piece that we were going through about the the the, the, the American Civil War that we find ourselves in, and it's it's a cold civil war. It's not picking up pitchforks and knives and guns. It's but it's a war. It's an ideological war for the heart and soul of the country that's been ongoing for a while. And he's articulating that the right doesn't understand this. That conservatives don't, that the left does. They know how to fight. He says. He says the woke leftists rewrite our history. They make it a story of oppression and nonstop racism instead of teaching kids to love and cherish the country. The woke left is teaching them to disdain it at times. There are times that young men are asked to go fight for their country, but why would anyone die for a country that is worthy of disdain? In other words, if you train people to hate the country enough, why would they ever fight for it? The woke leftists make war on the traditional mother, father, family, and religion, and the healthy values that those things nurture. They encourage climate alarmism and manufacture foreign energy dependence. This is not so much about concern for the environment. It's about destroying the American way of life. They usher in millions of illegal immigrants that have cultural differences. This, too, is about destroying America either by design or supreme indifference. Whatever the case, the woke leftists are paving the way for the woke regime. Like all totalitarian regimes, the woke regime has a dominant narrative. America is systemically racist. We must rebuke this change, this charge forcibly and often. Otherwise, we will surrender the keys to the castle. This charge of racism is nonsense. Racism has been falling like a rock over the past 60 years, but the less racism there actually is, the more the woke left insists they see it. Yes, we have sinned. But show me a country that hasn't. The fact is, as America is about as good as it gets. The woke regime also tells us that white supremacists are the most dangerous terrorist group in America. Our own president said that. 
This is nonsense. I don't know a single white supremacist in a position of power anywhere in America. Do you do you know any elected white supremacist anywhere in the country? I added emphasis there. The major institution in America, most notably the corrupt social and mainstream media, it, it, in cahoots with the equally corrupt deep state toppled President Trump. This was the coup, which was covered up by the media and still being covered up. True to form, the woke regime has a scapegoat, white folk. But the woke leftists are playing with fire. They should be careful about dividing the country along racial lines. What is most terrifying about the woke left is its certainty. It believes, and I see this in the, in the critics that I have today, that they are certain that they have perfect knowledge. They are beyond reproach, beyond question. Back to the column. They think that gives them the moral duty to crush white people and to terrorize their enemies. Us, our side knows there's no such thing as perfect knowledge. Still, we must fight with a commitment to America that is just as powerful as theirs is to tyranny. The only thing the woke leftists are good at is tearing things down. During the George Floyd riots, they began by tearing down Confederate statues. Consumed with rage, they couldn't stop Jefferson. Douglas, Lincoln soon followed. These heroes had to go because they are the best of us. We shouldn't be surprised if someone tries to blow up Mount Rushmore. And as far-fetched as it may sound, one day they will, in their ignorance and indiscriminate rage, they'll tear down the Statue of Liberty. Imagine a headless Statue of Liberty. Her torch has been ripped from her grasp. Her crown sits on the bottom of the New York Harbor, the grand base overgrown with weeds and small trees. Who will keep Lady Liberty upright and proud? Who will defend our country? We need a wartime president. We need someone who to rally around. A war without a commander-in-chief isn't a war. There is, there is a Lincoln or a Churchill somewhere amongst us. There always is. Our country's full of amazing people. I added that for emphasis. But he or she must stand up. This is not the time for polling. This isn't the time for focus groups. It's the time for someone to lead, someone with the courage to stand alone, someone of honorable ambition who will call the woke charge that we are racist what it is, absolute rubbish. Someone who believes that America's traditional culture is exceptional and is committed to keeping it that way. Someone who will recall the great successes of our past and renew our belief that we are capable of more. They will make us see that we are in a fight between liberty and slavery. A fight, as Lincoln told us, that is worth the last full measure of devotion. And this leader will be confident that the God that has never forsaken his almost almost chosen people will not do so now. A leader is necessary, but they will need our help. Everything we have, we must commit ourselves to defending our country. We must show the intellectual and civic courage of true Americans. The hour is getting late. Your country needs you now. He says his name's Tom Klingenstein. Thank you very much. I think that is a beautifully written, peaceful piece. That's not now. If you were to read that, I, 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 several wokeists have already responded. Oh, this is full of hate. This is this is anger. This is trying to create divisions. I think the left has. I mean, if you can go, you can go out to my Twitter feed right now and read the hate that's come at me today, knowing I was hosting this show, and and you can see their hatred. You can see that they don't like to be pushed back on. You can see they're not about peace. They're about being antagonistic. They're trying to get you riled up. They're trying to get you angry. When the truth is, we have an amazing country. We have a beautiful country. We have beautiful people in our country. It's a country worth fighting for. It's a country worth defending. It's a country worth preserving. But we have to come together to do that. And we've got to we've got to be able to fight back against them with the same kind of passion that they've had 
in pursuing us. We've got to be unashamed and we've got to be consistent because that's what we're going to have to have. Folks, it has been an absolute honor and a pleasure today. I'll be back tomorrow, 3 to 7 here. Brett Winterbull getting some needed time off. Your guest host, Chad Adams, here at News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Do stay tuned. Do stay optimistic. Get your Christmas shopping done. And for those who you don't celebrate that, hey, I hope you enjoy your time off anyway. Have a great day, folks. I'll be back tomorrow.